Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you as we continue our series, How Long? We all have times we want to cry out, how long? If we're already confident that God is the one ultimately in control, we may say, how long, O Lord? If you're tonight wondering, is there anyone in control? Maybe you just want to cry out, how long, and hope something in the universe answers. But what we find in scripture is that we can indeed trust that God is the one who answers. He doesn't always tell us exactly how long, but he answers and he says that he is making things right. But so often we focus on the wrong things, or we're not even really sure where to focus. And I thought about that a few months ago. I was scrolling through eBay, and maybe you've done this. Some people, I bet on here, have an interest in just looking for different items on eBay. If you have a watch list on eBay, if you have items that you've been looking for for years on eBay, that sort of thing, maybe tell about it in the chat, because... I think there's a lot of us out there. And for me, really where I get myself in trouble is the recommendation engine. I have a few things in the watch list, but where I really get in trouble is that eBay picks up things it thinks I might like. And that's what I'm unwrapping right now. I was scrolling on eBay and it said there was this, this baseball available. And I think this is a pretty neat baseball here. It has all kinds of signatures on it, as you may be able to see, and, and some of them I've been able to discern. Like, I'm almost positive, actually, I'm certain here. Here's Adam Wainwright, for example. Um, and, and if you look around, you start to see some other familiar names, both new and old on the Cardinals. There's, uh, I believe, Holiday. And so someone went to game after game after game at Bush Stadium, presumably. Maybe they traveled around. I really don't know the story behind this ball. And they collected signatures. However, because they're all scattered about, it wasn't authenticated individually as someone signed it and so on. When it went up on eBay, while a lot of this looks quite real, and I would be pretty certain that some of these signatures really are real. There's Mike Leak. Um, it wasn't selling for very much. And in fact, I got notified after eBay had recommended it to me and I read it. I got notified that the seller wanted to offer it for an even greater discount to me, which sometimes happens on eBay, because it couldn't be authenticated in the way that many of the baseballs that sell on eBay are. And so with all these amazing names on it, and as I look at it, it's clear it was written with my ballpoint pen. It looks just like they're real signatures. I really think it is. It couldn't sell for an authenticated price because... The things that are normally looked for, the things they can guarantee, yes, Adam Wainwright really held this ball and signed it, weren't going to happen with a ball that someone went around and individually over perhaps years went around and collected signatures. What do we use to authenticate how God is working in our lives? What do we use to authenticate what we're supposed to do in our lives? As we think about this psalm, we're often holding that baseball, and we see some signatures on there, and some of them seem to be pointing us to the authenticity of what God's calling us to do and, and what he wants us to do next in life. And, and yet, we're also filled with doubt. We wonder, is it really authentic? I wouldn't bet my life that this ball is authentic. I think it is. But when we're actually talking about life, when we're talking about, am I going to listen to Psalm 6 and what it says, we think... This really is betting my life. What am I going to do? But the psalmist calls us to say, I can look at scripture. I can see God's faithfulness over time. And the same fingerprint, the same signature is there over and over again. 
And while the people who want to sow doubt will say, well, have you taken it to the authenticator? Have you received the certificate? Is this legitimate? Scripture says you can do that yourself. You can look at the history of who God is. As we do, we can know with confidence that even as we ask how long, and all of us are going to, that we really do mean how long, not if, just how long. And that's where we're going to go tonight. So let's go ahead and ask our God for guidance, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Father, too often we, we don't know where to turn. We don't know what to trust. We read your word and we want to trust it. We hear people teach it. We want to trust that. We hear people offering wise advice, people offering what doesn't sound like wise advice. We hear a thousand different voices and we don't know where to turn and how to turn. All we know is we're crying out how long in whatever situation we find ourselves. Lord, would you help us to see that we can indeed ask that question to you, how long, O oh Lord? And know that even if you don't choose immediately to reveal the exact length of time, you do reveal your faithfulness and how you will restore us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's turn to Psalm 6, verse 4 to get started tonight. And here we read, David goes on, he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. What do we see there? This is crucial as we think about what God is calling us to do. Notice here, the psalmist has already asked the question, how long? But he's going to trust something. And that something he's going to trust is he's going to move, as we see the progression of the psalmist, he's moving towards a place of trust. is isn't that he received an authenticated letter saying, yes, here's a, a seal that says this is exactly how long. In fact, as we get to the end of the psalm, we still don't know the answer to the question, how long? And we'll see that as we wrap up next week. But what do we see? The psalmist is reminded of something, and he's reminded of something crucial. He's reminded of God's steadfast love. He's not reminded of some prophecy that foretells exactly what's going to happen. He hasn't gone to a seer and been told his fortune or something like that. He's reminded that God has been faithful to his people and to him. And so he knows that, well, he wants to know how long he knows that God is going to be faithful to him. It's a key movement there that he's not going to trust the authenticator who says, yes, the item in this box is authentic. Because that's what we're often looking for. We're looking for someone who's going to say, yes, the box that reveals how long we're going to be in a situation is authentic. He's going to look for something better. He's going to actually say, but I know the one who does the signing. And I know that he is there even if I'm not sure what to make of this current circumstance. And David doesn't say, well, the answer to how long is how long before I solve the problem. Sometimes that's our temptation. We say, okay, God's in control, but he's not really doing anything. So it's really up to me. How long before I can make things right? But what do we see here? We see exactly what John Calvin said in reflecting on this passage. He said that as we look to this, that we're only going to be okay if we move away from trusting our own merits. We need to quit trusting ourselves, quit trusting that we've earned a place in the authentic book of God's rescue, and start trusting in Jesus. Now, David comes before the time of Christ, so he doesn't say, 
I'm going to turn to the steadfast love you showed when you came into the world, Jesus. He doesn't say that, but he does turn to the Lord. And that trajectory that he sees in God's deliverance of his people and God's care for him, it's the same care that's ultimately going to result in Jesus coming into the world. And so David is right to see this. He sees a very clear direction and he knows he can turn and he can hold on to that. Now, if you recall from last week, we said that it's quite possible that what David's talking about here is a situation he's brought on himself. And that, on the one hand, can be incredibly discouraging and also misdirect us, because if we brought the problem on ourselves, we think, well, okay, now it's up to me to solve the problem. Yeah, maybe God brings me into his people, but if I mess it up, if I dig myself into another hole, God's not going to dig me out of that hole. But what does David do? He realizes that as he said, Lord, I want to follow you, but that's not a one-time thing. And as he says, Lord, I want to follow you, what the Lord is saying is, well, then actually follow me. Quit looking to yourself, trying to follow yourself, follow your own strengths. Even when you're in the midst of sin, just turn back to me. Because what do we find? God reaches out to us. We're not going to dig ourselves out of that hole, but God will dig us out of that hole. It's kind of interesting being in this psalm right now. I, I was thinking about the, the GOP primary debate that was on television last week. If you're like me, I'm a political junkie. I watch the, the Republican debates. I watch the Democratic debates. I watch, of course, the, the general election debates. I love political debates. I wish there were more of them. They're, they're, they're fascinating, uh, especially one like last week where they weren't quite talking over each other as much as the previous time. So you could hear what people were saying and what they were thinking, whether you agreed with them or not. It, it was interesting. But one of the striking things, and this cuts across party lines, every politician is going to do this. What do they do when they're asked, how are you going to solve this problem? Well, they start talking about their track record. I did this in Congress. I did this as a governor. I did this in whatever industry I was in before I became a politician. I did this and this and this. My opponent, now let's talk about my opponent. My opponent didn't do this, didn't do that, and didn't do the other thing. And so you shouldn't vote for my opponent, but you should vote for me because I did these things. And inevitably, you can have the whole stage crying out for us to trust in him or her, whoever it is that's speaking at the moment. And inevitably, everyone else has failed to do this, that, and the other thing, and the person speaking has done it. What do we do? Well, we hopefully check their records, but oftentimes it comes down to a bit of trust, right? We're going to trust the one who says that they did this or that or the other thing. In our lives, we often become that political candidate turning to God and we start to pray to him and we say, God, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Maybe we even throw in. Hopefully we don't, but sometimes our thoughts wander that way. My neighbor hasn't done this, hasn't done this, hasn't done this. Why isn't it that I've gotten out of the situation yet? Therein we've fallen into that trap. We're trusting ourselves. Maybe we trust some other people, people that rattle off the things they've accomplished. But what God is saying is the only one that can say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and it's completely true. It's not going to disappoint. The only one who's done that is me. And when it comes to God, that's true. God's the one that made everything, and God's the one that's going to fix everything. And no politician, good politician, bad politician, no corporate leader, no thought guru, no one else is going to do it. But God does. 
And we're certainly not going to do it ourselves. We talked in Sunday School Express last night about trusting in self. That came up a, f a few different times in that conversation. We kept coming back to it. And it certainly self can be a huge form of idolatry. And when you think about that, what do we do when we're trusting ourselves? What do we do when we're worshiping ourselves? We're, we're saying, I did this. Then when we find ourselves in that hole, no wonder we don't find ourselves coming out of that hole because we're busy looking to ourselves and we're missing out on what God's doing. So when we pray, when we come to God and we're wondering, how do I make sense of what's going on? Rather than saying, God, I've served you so much. Here's all the things that I've done. Maybe you haven't tallied it up. You need to rescue me now. What do we do? We cry out on the merits of Jesus. We say, Jesus has done this. Please rescue me because I can't do it on my own. I don't deserve it on my own. It's a movement to rest in God's love. I think that's why we see the transition of the mood of the psalmist here. Because as he turns more and more to what God has done and rescues and sees God's rescue, he has hope. Because as he's looking to himself, as he's looking to his own situation, no matter how much he might think that he's worth self-respect, he knows he's in a situation he's not going to fix on his own. And he has lots of reason to beat himself up. But he turns to the right source. And once we turn to the right source, then we realize that we not only trust in that right source, we trust in Jesus, but we also live for Jesus' sake. And that's what we see as we move on to verse 5. Take a look here as we turn to verse 5, what the psalmist says. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol... Who will give you praise? Think about that for a moment. Now, there's different ways we could take this. It could sound like, well, there's no afterlife. No one's going to praise God after they die. That's not what the psalmist has in mind here. And we see other psalms that, that at least hint at the resurrection. Yes, the resurrection is much more clear in the New Testament. But it's there in the psalms. David reflects on it. And so when David's saying this, what is he really saying? What he's saying is, whatever I can say about you, God, after death, whatever I can say about you in your presence, we can turn to Revelation and see everybody praising God. After death, that is. What's he saying? He said, he's saying, but right now I can give praise that people will hear, people that need to know who you are. And there David is recognizing, here is the reason for my existence. Here's the reason I'm king, and here's the reason you're going to rescue me. It's for your glory. God loves this world and wants people to know him so that they can join in in his kingdom. And so David realizes, why am I crying out, asking you to rescue me right now? It's so that I can go back, I can be restored from my present situation, and I can tell more people about you. How can, how can I tell others if I'm already dead? I, I'm not going to be able to. God, rescue me so I can tell more people about you. And in that we see, in that moment where we're in crisis, where we should have our thoughts, and too often we don't, which is, God, would you help me through this, not so that I feel at peace, not so that everything's okay for me, not so that I succeed, but but rather, God, would you help me through this so that more people can know who you are? Because I want more people to know you. And there's where David's able to end up. He's able to end up because he's trusting in the Lord. And now he's wanting to do God's work. Those two go hand in hand. If David didn't trust the trajectory of where God had been in his life and in the lives of God's people, I don't think David could then say, well, I want to tell more people about you. 
But because he already knows who the Lord is, it makes sense. It's what we see over and over in the progression of the Psalms. For example, we looked at Psalm 77 last week and the, the desperate cry there. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 10. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, the years of the right hand of the Most High. And if we went on in that psalm, we'd see the psalmist sings of what God has done to deliver his people in the past. That does two things. First, it reminds him of God's faithfulness. And it's also because even in his moment of crisis, he wants to tell other people about how God has been faithful. Is that our thought? When we're in crisis, when things are really rough in our own lives, that that this moment, the moment we have in this life, is meant to testify to God's goodness because we see so much of it authenticated. We're not wondering about it like this ball in this box. We can look back at history and see what God has done over and over and over again. We can read about it in his word. And if you've been following him for any length of time, Everything might not be going well. In fact, things may have gotten harder, but as we seek to follow him, we also see his faithfulness to us. And in that, we arrive at that purpose. It's not a denial of the resurrection, but it is a reminder that we have something important to do right now in this life. And as we ask God, rescue me, maybe actually heal me from a health problem. Maybe that's what you're praying for at this moment. Why are we doing it? Not so that we can just have things better, because we know that our God loves us. That's why we have confidence to come to him. We want other people to know him. We want to testify so that more people can know him. The problem is we, we trust in the wrong things. We, we trust in other sources of help, especially ourselves. We miss the point of what the engine of life is, what's driving us forward. And then even when we do get rescued, because we've missed it, we don't really know what to do with our new, better situation because we weren't really getting why we were in the place we were or how we got out of it. But when those pieces come together, it helps and it all comes together. I read the story over the weekend of California City, California. I, I, apparently, I didn't realize this, California City, California is the third largest city in California by landmass. Now you might say, well, what about we have Los Angeles and San Francisco and, and the other different San Diego, et cetera, et cetera. We could list off, read off. I don't know the exact breakdown of population of which one is the top, well, Los Angeles top one, but which is second and third, but we can go through, we can list a whole bunch of cities and especially begin to the suburbs of San Francisco and so on and start to break them out. California city only has 13,000 people living in it. It's about 100 miles away from Los Angeles in the desert, but it's the largest, third largest by landmass, not by population. Now, why is a city out in the desert with only 13,000 people that big? It's, it's a fascinating story, like a lot of stories from the 1950s and 60s, as there was a housing boom. Developers went looking for land that would be able to make them a huge profit, and a developer decided he found that there was water underground in this area. He decided he could make a lush oasis of a city out in the desert and make a fortune because it wasn't land that was of high value. And so they started to develop it. They built a park. They tapped that water. There's a lake out there in a park they named Central Park. They actually flew over in a helicopter. The, the developer took this helicopter out with water from New York Central Park 
dumped it in the lake to say this is like a continuation of Central Park in New York City. This is this special place. And they started to, to build homes. They, they mapped out a huge amount of terrain to build this, this place that was going to be this wonderful, well-planned community in the middle of the desert. Unlike Los Angeles with all of its traffic, for example, here would be a, a community that was well-planned, so it would be pleasant to live in, that people could afford to live in it. And because it was going to grow so much, they were going to make a fortune off their real estate at the same time. Here's a picture, uh, a satellite image of California City. And if you look at it, you'll notice there are some places where you can clearly see buildings on the map, houses, and there's 13,000 people living there. But notice you can also see what looks like roads, but with nothing or very little on those roads. They planned out space for all kinds of not just core in the middle of the city urban quote unquote housing, but also suburbs. They were planning to have suburbs of 30, 50,000 houses each. It was going to be this massive, massive planned community. And so they started to build the roads for it. But then people didn't buy. And so you can go out in the desert now, apparently, and there's all these largely dirt roads with street signs that you can see on that satellite map and beyond it where it was supposed to develop. They trusted that if they just put out enough advertising and they had this beautiful lake and they had some water and they were going to have a golf course and some other core stuff that would attract people to the amenities in the middle of the city, they would develop. But it had all kinds of problems. For one, the, the city couldn't really support itself. It was dependent on the developer. And as the, de the development company changed hands and ran into financial troubles, that trust in the developer quickly evaporated because the developer was no more. On top of that, they forgot something kind of important. They didn't have places for the people to work. Now most of the residents of the city actually work at an Air Force base that's about 20 miles away. And I guess it's at least somewhat convenient for them. But it's not the sort of thing that will build a massive community. It's too far away, and you're out in the middle of the desert. They trusted in their planning ability to lay out streets so it'd be nice to live in these neighborhoods and so on, but they didn't put their trust in the right place, which is things like jobs for people. People, if they're going to go work, need jobs. Too often, we start to plan out our life like California City was planned out. We we put out the map and we draw out the streets of where we think we should go. And even when we're in problems, we start to draw out the solutions to those problems, but we're failing to trust in the thing that will actually make it all come together. Or rather, in, in our case, the one who will make it all come together. They didn't understand that a core part of people's calling in an earthly sense is to go have a job. They're not going to drive 100 miles to Los Angeles. They, they need jobs where they're going to live if you want them to live out in the desert. Too often, we start building all this stuff, but we haven't put our trust where it needs to be. I think as we look at the beginning of the psalmist, the psalmist cries out in desperation. He's just thinking about this empty map of undeveloped land in, in, in his life. But then he starts to turn and to realize who's building it. That's what we can do as well. It doesn't mean it's all built immediately. But unlike California City, there's perfect hope that it will be built. Why? Because God is faithful to do it. He's not going to go bankrupt. He's not going to abandon it. He's not going to forget it. He's not going to overlook the things that are needed for it to develop. Because he's the master author. He is the ultimate planned community developer because he has developed the very community of humanity. No community exists without God.
that's the one we can trust. And so David wasn't just called to be a successful king, and then if he got into trouble, he wouldn't be any longer. David was called to be a successful king because he was called to glorify God. And God was going to be faithful to him in that, and he was going to go at his best and testify to God in that. And wherever we are called to, whatever your calling is, whatever my calling is, as we turn to God and trust in him that he's the one that has and will continue to authentically rescue us, then we can also see, well, and here's where he's leading me because he's going to be faithful to lead me for the sake of more people knowing him, more people coming in to the ultimate plan community of the kingdom of God. Our calling is to trust in our God and to glorify him. And we see those two go hand in hand. And as we'll see next week as we finish up this psalm, those develop us to the place where even in those desperate times, we can feel the hope of our God. So let's pray even tonight. We're not at the end yet, but let's pray that we would start to feel that hope because we're reminded of God's authentic faithfulness. Let's pray. God, would you help us that as we often feel like we're like that city, maybe the the real estate prices are pretty good right now, but it doesn't look like there's much hope. It's still just in a hole. It's still out there in the desert, undeveloped. And that's how we feel our lives are. We're out there in the deserts of difficult circumstances, of confusing circumstances, of, of broken circumstances. So we cry out, how long? What would you remind us of your authentic love? Love that, that has been testified to time and again over all of history. Would you help us to see that, to believe that, and thus to be able to go and do the things you've called us to do? Lord, would you help us to keep right at the center of what our calling is to glorify you? That as we are reminded and we reflect in ourselves of what you've done in the past, would it give us a great hunger to testify to others what you are doing in our lives right now and what you will do, that more might come into your kingdom? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. As always, please do give us a like or a share. You can follow us on all those social media channels I usually rattle off, but let me just ask you, you're you're wrapping up here. Before you leave, hit that share button and share this video. As you share it with your friends and family, what are you doing? You're helping others to realize that those deserts they're living in are places of hope too, because God is there. He's there with them. Next week, we're going to wrap up. We're going to see the full progression of David's journey in this psalm, and I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, if there's any way I can be praying for you, feel free to shoot me a text at our prayer texting line. You can see on screen 833-356-4032. It's wonderful to hear from you there or in the comments below, and we can pray for each other together there. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I'll see you again next week.